Welcome to Ecosystems for Change, where we co-author the playbook on transforming communities by amplifying the impact of changemakers around us. Whether you are an entrepreneur or otherwise changemaker yourself, a citizen who loves their community with a passion and wants to see it thrive, whether you are a mentor, investor, support organization, advisor, philanthropic funder, economic developer, or policymaker, Learn the practical tools and proven tactics of ecosystem builders from all around the world to better support the dreamers, doers, tinkerers, and makers in your community by taking a systems approach to social change. I'm your host, Annika Horn. Welcome to Season 2 of Ecosystems for Change. In this season, we will be talking about the slow and complex nature of our work. Now, I should say up front that I do not believe in silver bullets. But I will say that truly understanding how complex adaptive systems work might just be the single most important key to unlocking effective ecosystem building. I have to admit that for the longest time, I did not fully understand this concept. I just knew that I was banging my head against the wall. No matter how many hours and how much passion I invested, it felt like nothing I ever did on my own could move the needle in a meaningful way. Like I was constantly running uphill, trying to support entrepreneurs in my community with everything I had, to little to no effect. What's worse, I couldn't understand how and why the other players in the system couldn't see it the way I saw it. What needed to happen from my vantage point was glaringly obvious and yet it seemed like everybody else was playing a completely different game. Today, I know that was because I had no idea how complex adaptive systems really function. Now, bear with me. I know this sounds conceptual, theoretical, and, well, complex. I'm totally with you. That's probably the reason why I didn't dive into this until years into trying to build and nurture ecosystems for social change. But that's exactly why Season 2 is wholly, entirely, fully dedicated to this topic. My goal is to flip up the hood to take a good hard look at the mechanics of systems change. I will talk to practitioners to help us all understand how we can think and act more in complex adaptive systems in order to support entrepreneurs in our communities and build thriving ecosystems. In other words, you can't support a thriving ecosystem if you don't fully understand how complex adaptive systems work. Let me give you an example. When I moved to Toronto in 2018, I went about exploring the ecosystem the only way I knew. I grabbed coffee with everyone and their mother in the social enterprise space. I had conversations with support organizations for entrepreneurs, co-working spaces. I talked to investors, mentors, advisors, service providers, solopreneurs, you name it. And what was driving me crazy four years ago was the fact that depending on who I talked to, they described the ecosystem as either immature and broken or as thriving and best in class. I often wondered whether we were talking about the same city. I could talk to a support organization who would explain to me that the support landscape for social entrepreneurs in Toronto was really robust, that there was great collaboration among all the different supporters, and that it was really taking off. And the next day, I would talk to a social entrepreneur who told me that there was hardly any support and it felt like the ecosystem was barely existing. Were we all talking about the same Toronto, Canada? What I didn't understand at the time, and I know this now, is that each person that I spoke to only had limited insight into the ecosystem. They described to me what the ecosystem looked like based on their experience and vantage point. I know now that in complex adaptive systems and in most communities, every actor only has incomplete information colored by their own experience. 
in some way you may have heard a version of this following conversation. An investor says that there are no investable startups in their communities, and startups complain about the fact that there are no investors who are willing to invest in them. Both could be true at the same time, because these actors only have a limited view into what's really happening in the ecosystem. So here's lesson number one that I really want you to remember as we go into this season. As an ecosystem builder, beware of the fact that all these truths can exist in parallel, because each actor only has limited information and insight into the ecosystem. There's a famous parable about the three blind men and the elephant that I'm sure most of you are familiar with. It lends itself really well to explaining this conundrum in ecosystem building. Three blind men stand around an elephant for the first time, totally unfamiliar with the animal. And they're asked to describe what that thing is. One of them touches a trunk and describes it like a snake. The next person touches the elephant's legs and calls out his first buddy, claiming that it's a tree trunk. The third one touches the side of the elephant and explains that both of them are utterly and completely wrong, since clearly it's a brick wall. And all of these are true, of course. They are all describing the same elephant, but because they are in different positions and they can only describe what they sense through their experience, they will have a tainted view of the elephant. So back to my story in Toronto. When I first set out to immerse myself in the social enterprise scene, I envisioned it like a well-structured organization. I assumed there was a certain order or hierarchy that everybody agreed on and that once I'd had enough conversations, that secret order would be revealed to me and I would find my place in it. I figured that once I figured out the typical entrepreneurial journey of a social entrepreneur in Toronto, I could simply plug and play. The reason this never occurred, and I didn't understand this until a few years later, was that an ecosystem for entrepreneurs is far from hierarchical. In fact, it is the complete opposite. It is entirely self-organized. There are no written or formal rules of how and when to engage. Different actors, be it entrepreneurs, supporters, investors, so on and so forth, can come into the system and step out of it at any point in time, inevitably impacting the system in some way. They brought and took with them insights and connections, programs, funding, enthusiasm and ideas. The Toronto ecosystem was constantly changing, shifting and adapting. When one of the renowned players in the ecosystem, such as the Center for Social Innovation, CSI, or the Mars Discovery District, put their weight behind a certain issue, they would tilt the playing field in favor of that issue. Likewise, when they abandoned an issue, it almost disappeared from public consciousness. In other words, the actors and factors that influence the ecosystem are in constant flux. Whatever initiative would have yielded a certain result in January would most certainly have yielded a totally different outcome in August. This is the second lesson that is key to understanding your entrepreneurial community as a complex adaptive system. It is, as the name indicates, constantly adapting to whatever changes happen within and external to the ecosystem. I know now that I had trouble wrapping my head around the Toronto ecosystem because I was trying to understand it as some kind of static hierarchy, not the complex adaptive system that it really was. Now, I've thrown the term complex adaptive system around quite a bit. And if you're still listening, thank you for sticking with me. Throughout this season, I hope to shed more light on it and make it a little bit more, shall we say, palatable. So before we move on, I want to anchor us all in a definition that I've found really helpful and eye-opening. One of the pioneers in the world of systems thinking is the late Donella Meadows. In Systems Thinking, a Primer, she defines a complex adaptive system as an interconnected set of elements that is coherently organized in a way that achieves something. 
If you look at that definition closely for a minute, you can see that a system must consist of three kinds of things. Elements, interconnections, and a function or purpose. In the case of an entrepreneurial ecosystem, you can think of the elements as the entrepreneurs, supporters, the service providers, capital, so on and so forth. The second ingredient, if you will, are the interconnections. In other words, how are these players engaging with each other? What is the culture in the system and how does that influence the quality of relationships among these different elements? Are they open and trusting with each other, always ready to lend a hand? Or are they wary of each other, distrustful and protective of what they consider is theirs? Lastly, the function or purpose of the ecosystem in many cases is to see local entrepreneurs thrive. In other words, entrepreneurial ecosystems are complex adaptive systems. Let's pause here for a moment and let's dive a little deeper into what complex really means. It's not that complex, pun intended, I promise. So stick here with me. First, let me explain the difference between simple, complicated and complex problems and the systems we use to solve them. Let's start with a simple system. You already are super familiar with these because we encounter them every day without even knowing it. For example, imagine the bell on a bike. If you've ever looked inside a bell, you see that the apparatus itself is not terribly difficult or dare I say complex at all. You push a lever, let it snap and you hear it ring. This is a very simple system. Every time you repeat this motion with your thumb, you'll get the same result. Problem solved. A complicated system is if you step back from the bell and you look at the entire bike. We describe complicated systems as processes that include a lot of different steps. However, if you follow these steps in the same order over and over and over again, you should still always come to the same result. Sure, it might require some additional study or training, but by following all the steps in the right order, the result should always be the same. If, for example, you were to disassemble not a bell, but the entire bike, and then follow an instruction manual to reassemble the bike, you should still always get the same functioning bike at the end of that process. Obviously, it is a lot more complicated than a mere bike bell. It's an entire bike after all. But with enough practice and by diligently sticking to the prescribed order in the process, you should be able to reassemble the same bike over and over again. Complex systems, however, are a whole different beast. The assumption here is that in complex systems, there is no one way of going about solving a problem at hand. In complex systems, there are many different factors that influence the process, so that even if you practice and practice and practice and even do some extra studying and training, you may never get the same result twice. Let's stick with our bike metaphor. That means not just looking at the bell, a simple problem, or the bike itself, a complicated problem. It actually means trying to teach someone how to ride a bike, a complex problem. So even if you have taught 10 different people how to ride a bike, the process looked different for each of them, and the 11th person will still throw you for a loop. That's because there are so many factors that influence the outcome that no matter how good you are at training someone to ride a bike, you have very little control over whether or not that person's going to learn how to ride a bike that day. Your success is influenced by the quality of the bike. It's influenced by the terrain on which you practice. It depends on the weather that day. And of course, most of all, it depends on a variable you cannot control, the other person. Have they ever tried to ride a bike before? Do they have a good sense of balance? Are they risk averse? Are they athletic? Did they sleep well the night before? Did they have breakfast? Do they have other things on their mind during your lesson? As you can see, 
no matter how good an instructor or ecosystem builder you are. In a complex adaptive system, the outcome is unknown and highly ambiguous. And this is the third lesson I want you to remember as we go through this season. And I think it will start to make a lot more sense as we talk to different practitioners in the field. Hi, friends. I'm trying out something new for season three, and I hope you'll join us. On April 14, 2022, I'll be hosting our first community conversation called Burn Both Ends. I want to invite you, the listeners, to help co-create this show, and I would really love your input. Burn Both Ends is going to be a conversation about the emotional and mental toll of driving social change in our communities. What does it mean to take care of ourselves? What's getting in the way? How can we mitigate the effects of long stretches of incremental progress? And when do we need to step away? What does a sustainable lifestyle mean for purpose-driven community champions? At Burn Both Ends, you are invited to share your personal experiences and help me phrase the big hard questions. In season three, I will set out to find us some answers. Come and co-create the next season of Ecosystems for Change. You'll find the link in the show notes. And now, back to the show. When I dove into season two, I had the chance to talk to some of the thought leaders in the space of ecosystem building and economic development to learn more from their experiences and working within complex adaptive systems. Chris Gibbons is the co-founder of the National Institute for Economic Gardening. You will meet him a little later in this episode. Chris shared how entrepreneurship can revitalize communities through the lens of a complex adaptive system. As he told me his story of growing up in a small community that he had slowly watched to die, it sounded very familiar. I too grew up in a small rural community, in my case on the East German countryside. With a population of about 800, we had everything you needed in the village. A butcher, a baker, a small convenience store, a hairdresser and a bank, even a florist. The way our village economy functioned was that people made money locally and spent it locally. It was a functioning closed system. For example, you would work at the farm or the butchers and then you would go across the street and spend your money at the bakery or the hairdressers or deposited it in the bank. It was sort of a closed system where most of the money was generated locally and also redistributed locally. Slowly but surely, certain trends and shocks changed the system. Think about the financial crisis, globalization, certainly automization of a lot of processes and commoditization of goods. One after another, the farm shut down, followed by the convenience store, then the florist. People started to find their jobs elsewhere and spent their money outside of our village. The economic vitality of the community just slowed down to the point where there was little value created locally anymore. Today, the village that I grew up in only has a hairdresser's left. All the other stores shut down because there wasn't enough money going around locally to keep them in business. Instead of buying our bread locally, we now drive to the next town 10 minutes away to do our weekly shopping and get all the commodities that we need at chain supermarkets. In a way, it's just as convenient because people are in town anyway for work and school and doctor's appointments. Economically speaking, our village died. So the question then is, in communities that are slowly dying, is there any way we can save them and instead transform them using the very vehicle of business and entrepreneurship? What I learned from my conversation with Chris Gibbons is that we need to understand how each community works. We need to understand the local culture, temperament and personality, and identify the talent for innovation. Because you have to keep in mind that if the system tipped once toward a decline, you can help tip it again towards growth and economic vitality. What we need to do is to help local innovation take flight, and as ecosystem builders, that's exactly what we're in a position to do. 
We nurture and identify innovation and talent. We try to remove systemic barriers and source the right kind of support to help that innovator, tinkerer, or maker excel. Now, when I say innovation, I don't want you to think about rocket science or some high-tech startup, though I do believe it's an option. What I mean by innovation is focusing on what a community is already inherently good at and has had reason to improve upon. We're talking about creative thinkers, idealists who are in their garage tinkering and improving some kind of process that they are using every day. I asked Chris Gibbons for a few examples of what that kind of innovation might look like. In every town, there's always some kid that's doing something. There's always somebody that's in the garage, in his kitchen table, doing something. And they're there, and they stayed there, and they're the potential for creating something new. There's a guy in the town, uh, well, there's, there's two people. Let me tell you two Kansas stories. One guy, uh, he was in the motorcycle business, and he loved uh, motorcycles, and he got to like 65, and he's going, you know, I just don't feel as safe as I used to when I was out there. So he invented the three-wheel tricycle. It's a motorcycle, but it's much more stable. And he essentially invented an entire industry in this town. The other one is a woman who had these uh, porch banners and was selling them in the East Coast. And these are like, you know, American flags and tulips and that sort of stuff. And so we found her places all over the country, the people that wanted to buy that sort of stuff. And she added six people like within about a three month period of time, just because we could find new markets for her. And it was it didn't have to be Internet innovation. It could be simple kinds of things. So we got story after story after story that it can be done. But you got to know the forces that you're working against. If you just go in and want to be a do-gooder and say, yeah, we can do it, guys. Wow, wow, work hard. And you don't understand the systems that you're yeah. working in in there. It's like, you're working against a commodity system. You're working against a temperament system. You're working against a culture system. You don't solve those, you're probably not going to get it done. Another insight I've had since my days in Toronto is that if you're trying to change a system, you don't focus on the entire system all at once. Rather, you focus on a few well-connected, committed players who are willing to roll up their sleeves, observe how the system changes, and adapt along the way. We call these leverage points. As we learned in season one, oftentimes the best thing you can do is listen, observe, and take a lean approach through a couple of experiments to see what works in that local community. I don't know about you, but when it comes to solving some of the world's most pressing issues, be it in rural communities or urban ones, be it regional ecosystems, local ones, or even global ones, for the longest time, I used to feel utterly overwhelmed and inadequate. I used to think that we would have to tackle the entire issue all at once in this Herculean effort. What I learned through my conversation and experiences since then is that what really needs to happen to change the system and that we believe needs to happen are often two very different things. And to me, that's a relief in many ways. When it comes to ecosystem building, our job is not to charge ahead with a plan to overrun all existing players and efforts and institute a brand new approach to entrepreneurship and change making, as if any one of us really knew what's best for any given community. Instead, we need to listen and take small steps if we want to make any meaningful change in a complex adaptive system. Let's go back to Donella Meadows, who had some practical advice about how to actually influence a complex adaptive system. Grab your pen and paper, friends, because Donella Meadows sure knew what she was talking about. In her famous article, Dancing with Systems, she outlined seven pieces of advice that I hope you scribble on your office wall to save your sanity in this line of work. Number one, get the beat, 
before you disturb the system in any way. Watch how it behaves. Starting with the behavior of the system forces you to focus on facts, not theories. Number two, listen to the wisdom of the system. Aid and encourage the structures that have the system run itself. Don't be an unthinking intervener and destroy the system's own self-maintenance. Before you charge in to make things better, pay attention to the value of what's already there. Number three, stay humble. Stay a learner in a world of complex adaptive systems. It is not appropriate to charge forward with rigid and deviating directives. Number four, look for the ways the system creates its own behavior. Do pay attention to the triggering events, the outside influences that bring forth one kind of behavior from the system rather than another. Sometimes outside influences can be controlled and sometimes they can't. Number five, go for the good of the whole. Don't maximize parts of the system or subsystems while ignoring the whole. Number six, expand time horizons. Actions taken now have some immediate effects and some that radiate out for decades to come. And number seven, expand thought horizons. To understand that system, you will have to be able to learn from, while not being limited by, economists and chemists and psychologists and theologians. You will have to penetrate their jargons, integrate what they tell you, recognize what they can honestly see through their particular lenses, and discard the distortions that come from the narrowness and incompleteness of their lenses. They won't make it easy for you. If you ask me, that is a top-notch job description of an effective ecosystem builder who's trying to build a thriving ecosystem of changemakers in their communities. At the end of the day, folks, our job is to simply prepare the soil for other people's initiative to take root and flourish. One person who does this exceptionally well is Sharon Cheng at the Guild of Future Architects. I had the pleasure of interviewing Sharon for Zebras Unite in 2021. Here's what she said and what really stuck with me. When you think about the complexity of nature, it takes forever for things to really start and get into rhythm. There's never really a beginning, middle, or end. It's impossible to destroy it completely, even though we're doing a pretty good job at it right now. Things are resilient when they follow the laws of nature. We need to design our communities more in line with the principles of nature without falling victim to terminology like biomimicry, because it's not about that either. It's not about looking at a form and replicating form. It's about understanding essence that drive form and then seeing each other through that essence and allowing those things to thrive. My contribution right now is really seeding, you know, preparing the soil in a sense and seeding and make sure I gather enough nutrients for all these different species to have the air, water, and space to grow in the way um, they can grow. And, 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 and so it's more than gardening, really. It's, you know, how do you garden in the wild, in a sense? Yeah. And I don't know what kind of exotic, crazy flowers going to show up um, because everything we're growing now, we haven't seen before. We're seeing these fantastic flowers for the first time. It's fantastic fruits for the first time. Some things don't grow. You kind of watch them forever. You're like, has this grown even one inch in the last year? Um, and then also be the person to have the patience to look at those sprouts. You know, they're still alive. They just don't go anywhere. What does that mean? And look at the wildflowers and introducing them to the world, right? So I use, I, so I use a lot of natural analogies, but that's, that's my contribution is not to become that one flower, or one thing that everyone pays attention to, but rather continuously, you know, 
paved, paved the way for people to be able to get enough resources to do the work they have to do and trust that they will do the work. With that in mind, we're diving into season two of Ecosystems for Change. You will hear from practitioners in the field who share how they are applying this mindset and working within complex adaptive systems to better support changemakers and entrepreneurs in their communities. Are you ready to challenge your ideas and worldviews? Then let's go! Before we part ways today, I want to pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. As traditional custodians of the land on which I work and live, I honor the Tuscarora, Shokori, Saponi, Okaniji, Lambi and Ino people. I recognize their continuing connection to land, water and community. This episode was produced by Yellow House Media. <laughs>